This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. It is only a few days before the winter meetings, and we've already had just a ton of moves this week. We're going to talk about them all. Nathan Evaldi's a Red Sox, Patrick Corbin's to Washington, Paul Goldschmidt is in St. Louis, Carlos Santana has been finally traded, although I'm not certain this is the last trade for him. We're going to touch on Manny Machado's hard hit numbers, uh, a quick note on Juan Nicasio, who is oddly interesting, and talk about the giant Mets Mariners deal and also a quick tease we're going to have a special episode a standalone episode special episode early next week weird cool um I went and spoke to Adam Adovino who is uh, on the free agent market and we had a really interesting uh, half an hour or so chat where we touched on a lot of different topics uh including how he approaches free agency obviously he did a lot of really interesting work last year with uh all the fancy cameras and Rapsodo and uh, it was a lot of fun he was really interesting so we're going to run that early next week and then later next week right after the winter meetings we'll do a regular podcast where I assume the Mariners will have made 76 more trades let's start with Manny Machado yes let's um I feel like all of the oxygen on the Manny Machado discussion is about hustle right and now part of that self-inflicted he made the comment about Johnny Hustle and you know he had the incident with Jesus Aguilar uh at first base and you know that was probably not great for him but does it feel like people have forgotten that he just had his best ever hitting year? Like, are we not talking about that enough? Because he he did. He was great this year. Yes, I think so. I think part of the, the issue is that a lot of that happened for the Orioles, who were miserable. Yeah. And then he played well on the Dodgers, but I guess in the World Series, he wasn't that much of a factor. Then there were the hustle comments. So it's sort of like, in some ways, like, the perception of him is kind of low. But I feel like we just went through this with Robinson Cano a few years ago. Where, like, when he was a free agent, it was like, oh, he doesn't hustle enough. And, like, say what you will about the size of the contract, the Mariners got everything they could have. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they got- they're happy to not have the next five years, I'm sure. But he has, I understand that this guy interrupted by a PD suspension that colors everything. But he has been an incredibly productive player and remains so. We'll get back to Cano later, but it's kind of the same thing. I, agree, I hear you. With so, so, to me, it's like Machado. I mean, it'll be interesting to see where it ends up. Obviously, teams suitors like the hustle comments because it can drive down the perception and maybe maybe like you know make him come a little quote-unquote cheaper but he's still going to get a mega deal plenty of teams want him and you know the data that you've dug up about uh about his hard hit rate is pretty impressive because it shows that he's actually kind of been improving yeah somewhat so as uh, most of you know if you've been listening to the show for a while we define a hard hit ball as one hit 95 miles an hour or or more um, and we don't account for launch angle or anything in that because we're just trying to get to the hard hit skill. Obviously, it does matter what direction you hit it. But as you would imagine, a hard hit ball is a really, really good thing. Last year in the majors, all of the hard hit baseballs went for an average of 524, a slugging percentage over 1,000, and nearly 97% of home runs. Uh, you don't need fancy technology to know hit the ball hard, good. Uh, hit hit the ball hard, and good things will happen. Um, if you hit the ball 94 miles an hour or below, 
219 average, 259 slugging, hit the ball hard, good things happen. Same thing for Machado, who had a 559 average and a slugging percentage over 1,100 on hard hit balls. He has had the most hard hit balls in the four seasons of StatCast tracking by a lot. He led baseball in 2018 with 257 hard hit balls. That was 28 more than second place. He led the majors in hard hit balls in 2017 with 250 hard hit balls, 20 ahead of second place. And if you combine all four years, he has 957 hard hit balls, nearly 100 more than second place Mookie Betts. Obvious caveat here. He's been incredibly durable. He's had the most plate appearances. That certainly matters. Uh, But he hits the ball hard every year. And as you sort of alluded to, he's actually improved. I I found this fascinating. He has had an an uptick in his hard hit rate every single year. So in 2015, his hard hit rate was 41.9%. Then it was 43.6%, then 47.7%, and then 48.2%. That is really impressive. So I wanted to find out, well, has anybody else done that? And the answer is sort of. There have been 10 other guys, uh, minimum 200 batted balls every year, who've had the same four-year trend, but with a huge caveat. Some of those guys were just going from really, really bad to slightly less bad. Alcides Escobar, right? His high this past year was still only about half of what Manny Machado's was. That's not really what I wanted to find out. So what I did was I found guys who started from at least a league average hard hit rate in 2015, and I wanted to know those guys, how many of those guys improved each year. There's only four of them. And what's interesting to me, all four of them are relevant in this year's uh, free agent or trade market. Machado, right? JT Romuto is one of these guys. He went from 34% in 2015, uh, up and up and up to 41% this year. Marwin Gonzalez, we've talked about a lot as one of those guys. And interesting, Avisel Garcia is one of those guys. He just got, uh, you know, let go by the White Sox. And his problem is that his strikeout percentage jumped enormously this year. You can't make hard contact if you're not making contact, obviously. So I think that's kind of fascinating that you have a guy who started out so great and has found a way to get slightly better, and he's still only 26 years old. This is why he's going to get paid, obviously. For sure. And it's just a matter of kind of where. You know, when they when the Phillies made that trade for Gene Segura the other day, I sort of assume that sort of indicated some sort of preference for Bryce Harper because it seemed to sort of lock in their shortstop, and they also they already have – Kingery and Cesar Hernandez and Michael Franco. So it was like, okay, maybe this is suggesting they're going to really make a play for Harper. But uh, our Phillies uh, beat reporter, Todd Zalecki, has said that, you know, has written that, like, it seems like that's not really the case and that they may actually still prefer Machado. And none of those guys is so good that it's a kind of a deal breaker. I mean, Kingery just had a bad year and had a contract extension. Really so hard, bad year. So he's hard to trade. Cesar Hernandez, you could trade. Michael Franco, you could trade. And you could put Segura. Segura has played one full season at second base. You could easily sign sign Machado, um, play him at short, maybe convince him to play third, keep Segura second. There's a lot of options, so I think that Machado's still in play there. Well, as, as you you kind of alluded to, there's a lot of flexibility there. So the goal here is to add Manny Machado. The other pieces will fall where they may. It's hard to trade Cesar Hernandez. I think he's an undervalued player. There's just so many second basemen out there right now. You can get Jonathan Scope for free. Brian Dozier is going to be like a one-year deal type. You can shoot a little higher for uh, DJ LeMahieu. You know, there's a lot of second basemen available. Uh, Daniel Murphy's out there, but you still think he can play the position. But I agree with you. The Segura trade does not preclude the Phillies from getting Manny Machado. And I still feel like they're going to get one of them, Harper or Machado. Yeah, and they, and, they, and they kind of need to, yeah. right? Like, the, right, If you look at the, the projected standings... Um, on uh, Fangraphs from Steamer, they've got the Phillies in fourth place with 78 wins. Mets, Phillies, Nationals, and Braves have all made enormous moves so far this this winter, and I expect there's going to be more. One of those teams is going to finish in fourth place. That's amazing. Yeah, and and right now they have the, the Phillies peg for fourth, but you have to assume they're going to get one of these big bats. I, they'll probably sign a pitcher too, um, my guess. So it'll be interesting to see kind of where 
where where they they end up. There was thoughts of them being on a pitcher on a lot of the free agent pitchers. Eovaldi never really linked to him, linked to them. And Eovaldi came off the board today to the Red Sox. Uh, it's a new home, which is also his old home. He signed for four years and sixty-seven and a half million dollars. Matt- I guess pending physical could still uh... sure. Uh, yeah, this all came out about two hours ago, um, and Matt and I sort of had the exact same reaction. Imagine a year ago telling someone that Nathan Ivaldi and a year from that point would get $67.5 million and basically deserve it. Because if you look back on his career trajectory, it's been really interesting. He was a high draft pick by the Dodgers, um, came up in 2011 and you know hadn't had much opportunity. Traded for Hanley Ramirez, which I remember that was an interesting trade. Spent the next four years being like okay but not great for the marlins and yankees like this kind of guy who had elite velocity but no movement we've been talking about him for years and he had guy. that weird year with the yankees where he had like a, a really good one loss record but like yeah a year uh blew out his arm in 2016 uh didn't pitch at all in 2017 signed this deal with the rays for two years had more surgery to start 2018 i think we forget that he didn't come back until like two months into the season it was pretty good for tampa traded to boston uh, World series god as we all remember finally got this cutter that he'd been tinkering with for years to work and now $67.5 million. It's it's fascinating. I mean, you can't just look at his career path and say, this is what you're going to get going forward. Because I think on on skill, he's better now than he ever was. We saw that. He throws 100 miles an hour, and he's got a second pitch. It's all about whether he's going to stay healthy. But I guess that's sort of baked in, because if he wasn't, you know, if you didn't have that worry, he's probably $120 million. For sure. And, you know, he's never, his, his career, I guess back in 2014, he threw 199 innings. Um, but, you know, this year he threw 111. In 2016, he threw 124. 2015 through 154, and obviously the expectations for starters have changed. I don't think the the Red Sox signed him expecting him to throw 200 innings. No, um, you know there's been I mean you know, there's been some murmur of like the uh, the baseball like nerd sphere of like maybe the qualifier number should be lowered because like I agree the fewer sure. number of people very few people throw 100, even 162 innings anymore and this is like the class of pitcher we're talking about the guy who can be effective but you sort of have to. You know, like we've talked about Rich Hill a lot on this podcast over the years. Like the guys, you sort of have to to build in. Like, okay, a couple of maybe a DL trip or two, miss a couple starts. That like he's probably only going to pitch 140, 150 innings, and that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, I people can't look at it in terms of number of DL trips. It's the severity of those. Like if he goes on the DL three times next year, I think people will freak out. But if each time it's for ten days and he misses four starts, who cares? If he goes on the DL because he hurts his arm and he's out for four months, that's obviously a larger problem. Uh, it's it's kind of like, I don't want to say the beginning of a trend, but we're seeing some other guys be thought of this way, right? Like Garrett Richards. I think the Padres just signed him. We love Garrett Richards on this show. They're hoping this is going to be him uh, next. the next year. He's going to miss 2019 and hopefully come he just back. Got, he just got a two-year deal from the uh, the Padres. Yeah, and um, Andrew Simon wrote about Nathan Ovaldi, right? And he kind of did some research on some similar guys who we might think of in this way. Yeah, the first guy he, he brought about who makes, makes perfect sense is Michael Pineda, who last year signed one of these deals with the Twins and who's going to come back this year. And if you look at Michael Pineda... He was, in, by some measures, one of the most effective pitchers in baseball before he got hurt. Um, this is a stat that Andrew Simon pick, uh, pulled, pulled out in the piece that he wrote. Of the 78 pitchers who threw at least 400 innings from 2015 to 2017, Pineda had the 10th largest difference between his strikeout and walk rates, ranking just behind Jacob deGrom. He also suffered one of the largest gaps between his ERA and his FIP. So there's here's a guy where there's like, he showed, you know, throws hard, Big slider, actually a very kind of a similar profile to Ivaldi, um, who's seen some like big differences between his performance and his results, and the kind of guy that if like the Twins are going to sort of be a little bit surprising this year, um, 
he could be a big part of it. And the kind of guy that next year will be a free agent and suddenly like looks a lot more appealing. Like the, the comp between Pineda and Evaldi, I think is like kind of a perfect one for a, ver- for a variety of reasons. A couple of the names he pulled out, uh, Drew Smiley, who just got traded, who had also just signed one of these deals and just got traded. He's not going to be with the Texas. Texas. Um, we've talked about him before. High spin fastball guy generates a lot of uh, strike uh, swings and misses up in the zone and a lot of pop-ups. When he's when he's when he's healthy, uh, but he's gonna be pitching in presumably a low pressure environment for a kind of a middling Rangers club. That's a, that's a very friendly way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have more faith in Pineda sort of being able to come back because he has he's sort of been less. I feel like he's sort of been less injury prone over his career than than Smiley has. Another name he threw in there was Tyler Thornburg, who's a reliever, but has had his own share of like kind of injuries and was um was a guy who before he went to the Red Sox in the Travis Shaw trade a couple years ago. Had been a really effective reliever with the uh, Brewers and will be a, uh, a free agent next year. Speaking of uh, hilarious career trajectories that turned into big contracts, Patrick Corbin signed with the Nationals, uh, $140 million. And if you think about the way his career has gone, it's you know a, a little bit different than Ivaldi's, but not insanely so. In 2013, he was an all-star. Uh, people forget he was actually pretty good all those years ago. Bled his arm in 2014, came back in 2015, pitched only half the year. 2016, he pitched so poorly, he got demoted to the bullpen for the last two months. 2017, a pretty solid, you know, uninspiring season. And this last year, he was number five in the NL Cy Young voting. He was an all-star. Now he's going to be on the Nationals. And I, I sort of look at this, Corbin and Evaldi, I think are the two best pitchers who are on the board. I know some people would put Keuchel above one of them, but I'm kind of the low man on Dallas Keuchel. He's fine. It just doesn't I, excite me. I think, I, it, it's, I think there's a little bit, if you were looking short-term, just for 2019, you could probably put Charlie Morton in the, in the conversation with Evaldi. Okay, that's fair. But he's not going to get more yeah. than like a one- or two-year deal. And the Nationals, I think, kind of surprised me how much they needed pitching depth. Okay, Scherzer's great. Obviously, one of the three best pitchers in baseball. Strasburg has the uh, capability to be, but you know has been more very good than elite. And then after that, it's Roark, Joe Ross, and Eric Fetty. Which I guess you know those are fine names, but you don't want to start the season with that trio. You want some of those guys in reserve. So they really did need Patrick Corbin. They might still need another starting pitcher, and he was legitimately very, very good last year. He was one of, uh, if you look at the 189 pitchers who threw at least 100 innings in each of the last two seasons, he had the third largest increase in strikeout percentage. Garrett Cole number one, Blake Stell number two, Patrick Corbin up 9.2 percentage points from 21.6 to 30.8. That is because his slider. It's fantastic. It is an elite pitch, and he's one of these guys that we've seen all across baseball who they don't have to establish the fastball anymore and then work off of that to use their pitch. Whatever your best pitch is, you just use it. You're going to hear a lot of that if you listen to my Adam Adovino interview because this is a guy who loves his slider. It's like the exact same thing. And I think the story with Corbin a little bit last year is he got off to this great start, and then his fastball velocity dropped, and everybody was terrified by this. In April, his fastball was 92.4. In May, it was 89.3. That is horrifying, especially from a guy who's had arm injuries in the past. Um, but it did actually slowly work its way back up. So by the end of the season, it you know, went up a little bit each month by the end of the year, 92 miles an hour. And I really like Patrick Corbin. I think he's a good pitcher. I have a hard time finding what makes him great, though. Like I know he throws his slider a lot. And I know the slider gets a ton of strikeouts, but the data is just, it's weird on it. Like it does not have above average horizontal movement and it does not have above average vertical movement, not thrown in insane uh, velocity. I assume there's something to be said about deception from the left-hand side. That's got to be part of it. It's it's a weird pitch to me. Like, why is it great? Yeah, actually, I looked at his home road splits. I was wondering if maybe like there was something about like maybe the batter's eye in 
Arizona that made it that like he was particularly dominant at home because of his arm angle, but not the case. He actually has like almost identical home road splits in 2018. But the, I think it's one of those weird, one of those weird Yusmero Petit type of things where like there's just some like intangible way about how he releases the ball that just like is hard for for hitters to pick up. And now that he's decided to really he he increased the number of um, slider see through. In 2017, and then jacked it up another level in 2018. He also added a curve, sort of like a little bit of a different look on the breaking ball. So I wonder kind of how that might have played into it. And it's a curve that's really similar to the slider. Like it's kind of hard to tell them apart, to be honest. So it's um, it's, he's an interesting case. I think that I mean the deal to me is kind of extreme. It's a big it's, risk for the Nationals. I will say to their credit, when they identify players they want, they go and get them. Um, they've done this time and again. Um, and it, they've been a successful franchise for a few years now, at least in the regular season. So. And most of the free agent con- big contracts they've signed have actually panned out pretty well. Scherzer certainly worked and out well. They got ripped for the Jason Worth signing. Yeah. He played pretty well for them. Remember after 2015, everybody was like, really? Three years for Daniel Murphy? And- so it's – it's uh, to their credit, they've kind of uh, – they've done a good job of identifying the guys they want. The, the, the secondary cost of this is huge because they went over the luxury right. tax last year. They're giving up – Two draft picks and a hundred a million bucks in international bonus pool money. So there's this is a big hit for rebuilding their farm system. That that is the part of the luxury tax I pay attention to. I could care less if a team goes over and has to pay the tax, but then you start losing draft picks and the ability to spend on those draft picks. That actually hurts. So if they, I guess to me it's like they could assign Hap for like a third of the money for a three year deal and not giving up any of the draft picks. And I'm not that confident. You have all these. I mean, that you have all these. Corbin's going to be that much better than Hat this year. Well, he's, he's younger. He's quite a bit younger. for sure. But I think that in terms of like, you can sort of like manage your your risk a little bit. But um, you know, they they we talked. I think we talked about on the show last week. They were already considered the NLE's favorites per steamer before this. This actually just kind of cements that. I still kind of think they might end up with Harper. Um, in which we, case, they're we've like been talking about that for a long in, time. In, in which case, like then they're like. Maybe the best team in the National League. Well, I wouldn't go that far quite yet. But no, it, it is interesting. I mean, this contract, I think, is largely a function of timing. Like He was clearly the best pitcher available coming off a great year. But I don't think of him as like one of the five best pitchers in baseball. He's not Scherzer, you know? And I think he was he was boosted by the fact that there were none of those guys out there this year. And as you said, you know, credit to the Nationals for finding the guy that they, they targeted and spending to get him because he's a big help. And I guess I still... If the season started today, I probably would pick the Nationals. I wouldn't feel great about it. But we've, we talked about this like two weeks ago. I, I've got a lot of questions about the Braves. Uh, the Mets, good first start. They still need to do like six more things. The Phillies, good first start. Still need to do like six more things. One of those teams is going to finish in fourth place. I can't wait to watch the National League East this year. It's going to be a blast. Another move was made in the National League. Paul Goldschmidt. Corbin's former teammate. St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, and so that's, a, you know, there's a lot happening both with the Cardinals and also with the Diamondbacks team that they've left behind here. But here's the trade. Goldschmidt, who has one year remaining on his contract to the Cardinals for catcher Carson Kelly, uh, starter Luke Weaver, and minor league second baseman Andy Young. So Carson Kelly, I think, I, I want to take a step back for a second. I think I like this deal for both sides. Like, that's my hot take. It seems like a fair deal for both sides. I, that's not what I, That's not what people want. That's what I feel. All of us, a slight uh, tangent on this point. Like, I think it's kind of funny the way people react to these trades. Like, I saw when the the Mets Mar- the Mets uh, Mariners trade was first reported, and people there was like some reports like apparently Jerry Depoto was giddy about this trade. Like, man, the Mets got fleeced. It's like, well, it's possible possible that both GMs could be giddy about a deal. Like in a perfect world, both sides should be happy with it. You know, in a perfect world, both sides should be giddy about uh, a trade that they made. So in this case, it's kind of the same thing where it's like, 
this seems to work out. This seems to make sense for for both sides. Yeah, I mean, for for one year of a first baseman, even one as good as Goldschmidt, you were not going to get a top star level return. That's just not the way it works. And what you got was a pretty decent right-handed starter in Luke Weaver, who fair had a pretty lousy second half, but you can slot him in the rotation right now. Carson Kelly has been ready for like two years, but Yadi Molina has always been in his way. So he can start pretty much right now. And for the Cardinals, they've got a lot of guys like Luke Weaver. They have another catching prospect right behind Carson Kelly. So that makes a ton of sense. Uh, I think, you know, the question is, should the Diamondbacks have just held on to Goldschmidt and tried to go for it this year? But I also remember how much we all killed the Orioles for not trading Machado last winter and then getting like an okay return at the deadline if if you had decided you couldn't extend Goldschmidt which that was the optimal outcome uh, then I don't I don't know what you would have expected them to do like you needed to trade him now and not five months yeah they also got uh, a competitive balance round B pick which is like you know in the 60s or 70s and they're also going to get a they, they're getting draft picks for they're getting draft pick for Corbin leaving and they're going to get another draft pick when Pollock signs elsewhere so they're going to end up with like seven of the top seven I think seven of the top 75 picks in the draft this year so they're in really good position I know this is not necessarily what Diamondbacks fans want to hear right now but they're like in really good position to add a lot of talent this June and you know it's going to be a bit of a rebuild but like suddenly like they're going to basically add like a new like top 20 you know seven of their top like 20 prospects are going to like be coming in June. Yeah, I don't. I think this this day was always coming because, like, you know, Corbin left. Pollock's a free agent. Uh, Goldschmidt was going to be after one more year. I, it was never possible they were going to sign all three of those guys to stay. I wouldn't think. Yeah, the question is what if uh, they can trade Granky, and what that might look like. Yeah, and you know, maybe we just talked about the starting pitching market. Maybe having a guy like Granky out there. This is this is why it almost makes sense for Cleveland to trade about talk about trading some of their guys. There's not a lot of starting pitching left other than Hap and Dallas Keuchel. Okay, so Goldschmidt. Uh, had kind of a weird year, right? He got off, if you remember, to a really, really slow start. Um, last year, his his April and May were just really poor, but he hit like himself after that. And uh, his home road stats were really interesting. If you look at his splits from last year at home, 238, 363 on base, and a 420 slugging. On the road, 339, 415, and a 638 slugging. Those are massive differences. Now, I do think when we look at a number, let's say like weighted runs creative plus, it doesn't capture that fully because the humidor came to Arizona last year and it changed that park from like the second best hitters park in baseball to something neutralish, slightly pitcher friendly. Like that made an enormous impact. Um, so if you were to look at, let's say, some single year comparisons, which I, I found on an article on Fangraphs today, he might be moving to a slightly worse hitters park. Uh, in St. Louis, even from what the humidor version of Arizona was last year. Uh, if you look at the, the park factor where 100 is league average, last year the park factor in Arizona for home runs was 97, and St. Louis it was 91. That's not going to make a huge difference. Like I think you know, him just being consistent and not running into a bad batted ball walk or a slump or whatever, these things never have as much of an impact as people want them to do. But I think this might slightly hurt his rate stats uh, and his counting stats going to St. Louis in some sense. Yeah, it's uh, his 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 year. Uh, our uh, our crack researcher Andrew Simon dug up some uh, info on him. His year last year was really kind of weird because the first two months, as Mike alluded to, were terrible. In fact, his weighted runs created plus in May of forty six was the second lowest he's ever had for a calendar month in his career. But then June was two fourteen, which was the second best he's ever had in his career. And then July was one ninety four, the fifth best he's ever had in his career. And it actually seemed like in the the first two months of the season, he was falling behind in O one counts a lot. Which uh, in March and, and the first through May, he was falling behind 0-1 61.6% of the time, which was the highest of any any everyday player in baseball. And then 
in June through October was down to 46%, which was basically one of the lowest in the league. And a lot of it had to do with just him taking or just whiffing or fouling off. It wasn't even him being less aggressive on first pitches because his take rate on OO pitches was basically exactly the same, about 60%. It was just that he was missing them and fouling them off a lot more frequently. And then after May, he started like when he was swing, swinging um, OO, he was doing damage and it was the Paul Goldschmidt of old. My take on Paul Goldschmidt is he is now to me the prohibitive favorite to win a National League MVP in 2019. Wow. That is a big take. The, the narrative is like so – it's like it, it it writes itself. He goes to like St. Louis, you know, the whole best fans in baseball narrative. They're a team that's missed the playoffs the last three years. Their fans are frustrated. He's a guy who's come close to winning MVP a few times. If the Cardinals make the playoffs next year and Paul Goldschmidt has anything resembling a Paul Goldschmidt season, he is winning National League MVP. Okay. Well, I'm going to hold you to that when we make our predictions uh, in late March. It is interesting the domino effect this has for the Cardinals, right? So Goldschmidt's going to come play first base. Well, the Cardinals had two first baseman types last year. Matt Carpenter, I assume, will play third. Judd Jerko to the bench slash traded slash second. Uh, Jose Martinez to probably traded. He can't play the outfield. We, I mean, we love Jose Martinez on the show. He cannot play the outfield. Future Tampa Bay Ray Jose Martinez. Oh, I mean, that's, I was <laughs> right? just about to say, any AL team that's sort of like lurking that thinks that they can make a run at a wild card spot, like... How are you? The, the, the Rays are the perfect. There was a report, and I unfortunately just cannot remember who had it this morning, that said that the Rays were also in on Paul Goldschmidt, which makes a ton of sense. Well, get the next best thing. Go get Jose Martinez. We've talked about Nelson Cruz yeah. uh, for them, but like it's almost weird that, that they didn't throw Jose Martinez into that Tommy Pham trade this, this summer. But yeah, no. <laughs> but like even, the thing is, even if you're a team that's even like a step below that's like lurking for maybe, maybe a run this year or the year after, like the White Sox or the... Um, the twins, like the team that wants to compete soon, like Jose Martinez, he's basically in his prime. He's got a few yeah. more years of team he's, control. He's a weird guy because he's like 30 with five years of control left. <laughs> so I, I would think that there'd be a few teams that would be interested. I saw there was a, a couple of Jose Abreu trade rumors out there. I could easily see them trying to move Abreu and bring in a guy like Jose Martinez. There's just a lot of places. I'm fascinated to see where he gets traded. The Astros would be another team. Yeah. Um, but, but like these other NL teams, like this has to be the beginning for the Cardinals, you know, like this. The, the ripple effect this has on the roster has to lead to other things. Like, they got to get rid of Martinez. I don't actually love Carpenter at third, um, but I guess if you're assuming, you know, I know they want to sign Goldschmidt long term, but who knows if that happens. So maybe you think you've got Goldschmidt for one year at third and then you move him back. Like, they had so many defensive problems last year. That, that is a concern to me. Um, and what they really should do is still go sign Bryce Harper. This is a really right handed lineup. So Goldschmidt doesn't help with that. They need a big lefty bat. They need to get Bryce Harper. That is my team where I think Harper should end up. I what don't a, think it'll happen. What about like uh, I think we uh, Mark Feinstein wrote about this a Dexter Fowler for Kyle Seager challenge bad contract challenge wow. trade. But wait a minute, then where are you playing Matt Carpenter? That's a good point. <laughs> you can't have every like corner infielder. That's in fair. Um, speaking of somewhat limited first base DH types, Carlos Santana, who has been. Sort of a celebrity cause on this show for some time. Finally got traded. Uh, he went to Seattle. And, you know, I've understood most of the Seattle trades. This is the one I didn't really like, the Segura trade. I, I, I just didn't like the way that played out for Seattle. Um, it's really hard for me to see him, Jay Bruce, Ryan Healy, and Dan Vogelback all coexisting in the same organization. Uh, but he's there for now. He's someone you can put out on the field. We've talked about this. He had a terrible first month. After that, he was basically the same Carlos Santana he always is. He signed for two more years. You could see him getting traded to any of those teams we just talked about, you know, Tampa Bay, Minnesota, wherever. Um, but I, you had an interesting argument here that 
the Mariners' offense might just keep him? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, no, it's actually I'm not sure he'll ever, ever take it bad for the Mariners. That said, and this is uh, – I will uh, hat tip the Joe Sheehan newsletter on this one. He made a great point. He said, one of the quirks of these deals that the uh, Mariners have made the last couple of weeks, and you'll include the Alex Colomay for uh, Omar Narvaez trade, is that they may have accidentally upgraded the offense. Because they're basically – you know, yes, Cano was good and Segura was good and Nelson Cruz is good, but Santana and Narvaez – are representing huge bumps in on-base percentage. They got very little OBP at a first base or catcher last year. Um, now, the pitching is going to be terrible. Paxton's already been traded. But I went and looked, and if you look at the Steamer projections right now, Steamer actually pro- projects the Mariners to score slightly more runs in 2019 than they did in 2018. So when I saw without Cruiser, without, yeah, like with the, their current lineups, when I, when I saw Sheehan write that, I was like, could that be true? And then I went and looked it up. And last year they scored 4.8, 4.18 runs per game, and right now they're projected to score 4.32 runs per game. Granted, they're projected to allow 4.76 runs per game, up from 4.39. So yes, their run prevention is going to be a lot different. But they were a bad OBP team at a couple of slots, like really bad. And Santana and Arvaez are two of the best OBP guys at their respective positions. So. Right now, their offense is actually kind of serviceable, especially when you factor in that Kyle Seager is probably going to be better than he was last year because, frankly, he can't really be any worse. Um, So it's just a a, a fun thought exercise about how they may have accidentally kept their offense level, but I still think Santana is good trade bait because, as we've talked about a lot on this show, he still has a lot to offer. Here's a fun game. Is Felix Hernandez going to start on opening day in 2019? I I think they will end up trading Mike Leak, right? So Paxton's gone. Sheffield will probably be in the rotation. You think yes? Why not? So bad last year. He's so Felix. bad. He's Felix. Why not? He was so bad last year. Um, one of the other guys who was in this trade was Juan Nicasio, and he is kind of a, a relatively minor piece. I think he was put in to balance the salaries more than anything. But I looked at his numbers briefly, and they're so wild that I just had to talk about them. He had a six ERA last year. Six. That's bad. That is obviously terrible. However, he had a fifty-three to five strikeout to walk, which is insanely good. He had a two ninety-nine fielding independent pitching and if you look at our upcoming Statcast era equivalent tool he had a 315 Statcast era and he had a six actual era so i think a lot of people see that and they go this guy's a bum he had a six era it's not actually true and as you would be unsurprised to learn it sure seems like a lot of it was just atrocious batted ball luck he had a 402 batting average on balls in play if you go back to the end of world war ii and you look at any pitcher who threw as many innings in a season as Nicasio just threw, which was 42 innings, there were nearly 20,000 pitcher seasons. He had the third highest batting average on balls in play allowed. Now, BABIP is not just about luck. You can be giving up crushed baseballs, and certainly that can matter too. Um, but he had a four, uh, he also had the largest gap between expected weighted on base and actual weighted on base. He had a 273 X Woba. And a 349 Woba, and that is accounting for batted ball quality. That was the largest of 438 pitchers who saw 150 plate appearances this year. Um, for the record, the two guys who had worse BABIPs, 2013 Jose Mahares for the Giants had a 410. 1994 Jim Converse, who I can honestly say I had never, ever heard of, had a 405 for the Mariners. That's how you get a 6 ERA, uh, and it's uh, probably going to be better this season, I would think. Although the Phillies defense, who knows? Yeah, it's a nice pickup for the Phillies, and that's sort of the deal that they can kind of make. They've, they've talked about how they're ready to kind of spend some money, and they can just sort of make deals and not have to worry. They sort of, you know, Nicasio's making a little bit of money, but they take him on despite the bad year he had, and he's probably going to be a big part of their bullpen this year. Yeah, he was, he was, I just, I always like it when you can look at a big number like that and say, wait a minute, 
hold on. Um, and then the final move that's happened in that division, we haven't really talked much about the Cano Edwin Diaz trade. We talked about how Cano may be traded, and I think we talked about how Diaz may be traded. Yes. But that was all before this trade actually happened. And as I think I said on Twitter, I've changed my opinion on this one about 75 times, which I think makes it valid for both sides. Like there are reasons to like it for both sides and there's reasons to hate it for both sides. And I understand, you know, Mets fans aren't thrilled about giving up the number six overall draft pick for a 35-year-old, 36-year-old. And I understand that Mariners fans aren't thrilled about the team they may have to watch this year. But I think there's some validity to it all around. Start with the Mets. I think I'm on board assuming there's like six more moves to come because they were not a win-now team and they're acting like a win-now team. Yeah, they need they still need to figure out catcher um, and whether that's sign Grandel or trade for Realmulto. I'm not really sold on the Realmulto rumors because it seems like they'd have to give up maybe... Conforto Nimmo. and Nimmo. I don't know why... The, Nimmo, Conforto's got three years of team control left. Nimmo's got four. I could see Nimmo appealing a little more because of that extra year. Um, but... Uh, yeah, that seems like a, a, a downgrade unless you're going to go sign Pollock. But then again, Pollock has got injury issues of his own, and then you're just kind of adding a lot of payroll. It seems like a lot of give, spending a lot to give up a lot of cost control talent. I don't really get that, but I'd have to imagine you know there's gonna, they're going to sign at least one of the like good relievers out there, maybe two. So yeah. here's our bullpen right now: Edwin Diaz, who is phenomenal, right? One of the five best relievers in baseball. Uh, Seth Lugo, who was very good last year. Robert Gasselman, who was very good last year. Is their fourth best reliever right now Paul Sewell? Like, it's it's grim after that. Yeah, no, I think I, I could not agree more. So it seems like, you know, whether or not they're willing to go to get Adovino and Britton or Adovino and Miller, they should probably target one of the lefties. Yeah. I feel like Britton, Britton or Miller seem pretty likely to end up I on the I think that makes sense. Um, unless, unless, maybe not Miller, but unless Britton wants to be a closer somewhere, yeah. probably won't get that. Um, and I think you need one of those good multi-inning guys like Adam Warren I know he's not a sexy name but that's the kind of name I think in addition to someone like Miller or somebody yeah I mean th- I think f- for from the the Mets perspective the tr- part of what makes the trade make sense for me is that like it's really hard to make trades where you get rid of guys who you really don't want on your roster anymore and get players back that you do want so to find a way like to sort of carve a, a trade where they got rid of Jay Bruce who had two years left on his especially guys with multi-years left on their deal. So to carve a trade out where you can get rid of Jay Bruce off your roster, which opens up a spot for Pete Alonso, which I think is huge because if the Mets are going to be good, it's going to be like Pete Alonso being an impact impact hitter, which I think there's good reason to think that that's going to be the case. So to get Bruce off that roster in a trade where you're actually getting players that you want it's not always easy to do. Usually when you trade a guy like Jay Bruce, where you're like, oh, it's just like you're dumping him and taking on someone else's overpriced reliever or just, you know, even in the last year of his deal, maybe DFAing him. So in this case, to sort of figure out that trade and get Cano, who, yeah, he's old, but he's re- remained an extremely consistent and good hitter. People seem to forget he's still a very good hitter. He's, I mean, he's a Hall of Fame caliber hitter, so I don't think you can just be like, oh, he's 35. Like, he's literally one of the best hitting second baseman of all time. And while I don't expect him to be like the 2012 Robinson Cano, like there's very good reason to think he will be a productive hitter for the next couple of years. And Diaz, the Mets bullpen has been legitimately terrible for a few years now. And they just got one of the best relievers in baseball who was under team control for four years. There's also the, the matter of the starting rotation where there are rumors they would trade Syndergaard, which <clears throat> you can't judge it without knowing what the return would be. So fine. Uh, but if you look at that rotation, 
they desperately need depth. I mean, DeGrom was phenomenal last year. It's almost impossible to expect him to do that same thing again, right? Zach Wheeler was a big breakout star. He does not exactly have a track record of this. And, you know, Syndergaard, when healthy, is great, but hasn't been healthy. And, you know, I don't trust Steven Matz. I don't really trust Jason Vargas. You need to add pitchers. And I, 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 don't, I don't know how they're going to do that, but I would love to see them get Robbie Ray out of Arizona in some way. That oh. makes so much sense. <laughs> I don't know how, but that's what I want. That's what uh, I, want. I think it's more likely they sign, you know, sort of like the... Uh the Marco Estrada type to sort of help beef sure. out the back of their team. I wonder about Mike Fire. So he's kind of unclear how much he's going to call. He just got non-tendered. Yeah. But he actually was pretty good this year. He was good with the A's. Yeah. With the A's. But like, I actually, I, I forgot where I read it. It was basically the point someone was making was that like, you can, in your last year of arbitration, you can use free agent contracts as a comp. Hmm. So the fact that, and you can also use a lot of traditional stats, one loss record and ERA. So the fact that Mike Fires had basically an identical one loss record in ERA as David Price, that he, he could be, not that he would get thirty million dollars, oh, no, no. but the fact is that he would probably get. And that's what the point is. David, David Price is making thirty million dollars a year, so he could realistically use that as a comp. That like Mike Fires in arbitration might have actually got way more than you would expect as a guy in his final year of arbitration. So, but he, he did have a pretty good year and has, has a track record of being kind of serviceable. So he's the kind of guy that could get like one for three or two for 20, and I have no idea what I it's going to be. I think that all makes an enormous amount of sense. I also saw a report that said that the Mets are looking at Peter Alonso as their opening day first baseman. And I'm curious, what do you think the reaction from the Mets fan base would be? Would that be great? We're so excited to see him. Or this is peak Mets. They didn't call him up last year, and they still don't get the extra year by having him up on the opening day roster. Um, I know it's a new regime. Maybe they'll just be happy to see him. I think they'll be happy to see him. I also think that like he's not the class of player you try and do that with. No. Like he's a twenty-four-year-old right, right first baseman. He's not Vlad Guerrero Jr. Like if he's if he's a if he's a a stud, you probably don't want his decline years, and you don't want his like like. But if, if you get six years out of Pete Alonso and he turns out to be a stud, just like as I've said, th- best case scenario for him is Mark Trumbo's career. But you think best case scenario? Well, okay, fine. Not best case scenario. Most likely good outcome. <laughs> there's, there's, I, yeah, fine. I think, best case scenario is Harmon Killebrew. You know, like, you know. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say best case scenario. I shouldn't say Paul Goldschmidt because Paul Goldschmidt actually is that really athletic. Good fielder, yeah. Um, I'd say more, um, Paul Canerco, best case scenario. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, I yeah, the right, the right, right first baseman is just like sort of not really as much of a thing. Uh, it's it's a it's a rare profile. Maybe Eric Karras is more likely. Uh, interesting. Likely profile. Um, point point being, I think more likely because they have Cano and Jeff McNeil who could play some first base and Todd Frazier. I still think there's no reason not to keep him down for. 15 days or whatever just to get that extra year of service time if you want it but the point remains that um he's now in in the in the crosshairs he is one of the guys i think i'm the most excited to actually see this year just based on all the hype and all the stuff we saw and just that we now have the stat cast out you know it's like he is going to be whether or not he makes contact enough to get to it um he will make contact sometimes he's going to hit the ball as hard as basically anyone in baseball it's going to be great quickly on the mariners um i think i understand like i like the prospects i got back like you know Kalnick's good dunn is good Getting rid of Cano's contract for them seems good, but I don't like trading Diaz with the handcuff of Cano. I feel like if you're going to trade Diaz, go get someone's like elite, soon, ready-now prospect and don't lower your return by forcing somebody to take Cano. Just pay Cano and trade Diaz. That's what I, That's how I felt. Yeah, sometimes it's one of those things where it kind of depends. You know, Supposedly, they were really high in clinic and they wanted to take him, but the Mets took him at number six and they were going to take him at whatever they had, 14. So if they love him... Maybe they might think this is a a coup. It makes perfect. I mean, what they're doing makes sense. It also suggests that like they trust Jerry Depoto to do this rebuild, and then maybe he's gonna be around for a while. I mean, I think that's there's probably something to that. I sort of assume he's made two more trades while we've been uh, you know talking here, but who knows? Um, remember, 
We have a, a, an extra special week next week. On uh, Early next week, we'll release an interview with Adam Montavino where he talks about all sorts of data and uh, really interesting stuff. And then we'll do a regular show next week after the winter meetings. Thanks for listening. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thank you.